If you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you would open them up to Genesis chapter 3. You know, it's really good to see people in the front pew. There's a little secret that you probably need to know that the pastor rarely ever looks at the persons in the front pew. I just want you to know that. Hi, you guys. I'm trying to break that mold. Here's my question. Do you agree with me that salvation is by grace? That when we came to God, our hands were absolutely, utterly empty? We had nothing to barter for our salvation with? Good works, church attendance, good pedigree in a Christian family. Absolutely nothing to give to God that could have earned our salvation. You all agree with me, right? So why is it that we forget that marriage is completely by grace as well? I mean, we know salvation is. But we forget the marriages. Friends, every good thing that pleases God must be a work that He is producing in our hearts. And that extends to a satisfying, God-glorifying marriage. It is by grace that we are married and loving it. And we're going to see a lot of glimpses this morning of that grace. You know, I like first glimpses. You know, when you go on a vacation, we like the mountains better than the beach, but we like, you know, I like to go to both. But when you first see that towering peak and your children can see it, that is an awesome feeling. When you first can see the glimpse of the ocean, that's awesome. Parents, you know that first time that you actually laid eyes on your newborn babies, isn't that the most surreal, euphoric experience? The first time it snows every year, it's fun. We all gather at the doors and the windows and go out and try to catch them. First glimpses are awesome. And we're going to see that Genesis chapter 3 is full of first glimpses, especially of the grace that you can find in Jesus Christ. And here we've got Adam and Eve, the first couple. And their world friends, please, get Get the magnitude of this. Their world had fallen apart. They sinned, and it polluted everything in them. It polluted everything that's in their lives. And they tried to shift that blame away from themselves. But God, like He does with every one of us, held them personally accountable. And He lays out sentences. He lays out punishments to, the, to, the, to Eve and to Adam which affect every woman that will ever live and of every man that's ever going to live. And it affects them at the very deepest parts of their femininity and their masculinity. And then as if that's not enough, God evicts them out of the Garden of Eden, out into the world. Away from His presence. See, my question is this. As I try to climb into the very shoes of Adam and the the very life experiences of Eve, my question is this, how are they going to make it? How's their marriage going to make it? And what we're going to see in this passage, Genesis 3, 20 through 24, we're going to see glimpses over and over 
of hope and grace that God gives to them immediately after they fall into sin. And this grace is for every person, friends. It's available for every marriage. But there's one condition. You ready? There is a condition. Grace only comes through Jesus Christ. Christ took all of the punishment. Can I give you a whirlwind view of this? Just as what, by way of introduction, I want to connect for you very, very clearly every bit of punishment in Genesis 3 connected with Jesus Christ and the grace that's available. Let me do that very quickly. Now, you know sin brought women pain in childbearing, pain in their marriage, but no pain is equal to the suffering of Jesus when he brought forth many children. Here's what the Bible says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory and raising up people for God should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Christ tasted pain that no woman will ever, ever taste the depth of. If sin has brought conflict into all of our marriages, if you're married and you're alive, then you know there's conflict always waiting at your doorstep. But it can't compare to what Christ has endured for us. And Hebrews, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We learn that men are going to experience sorrow. They're going to experience these thorns and these thistles, these painful obstacles and these empty promises in life. But Christ wore these thorns on his head. As we learn in scripture, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Men are going to experience sweat in their work, but Christ, the Bible says, being in agony, prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Both men and women in this punishment in the garden will experience great sorrow, but Jesus, it says, is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Every person will experience death unless Christ comes before. But the Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Every person reaps the effects of the curse of sin. Yet Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, Christ, our King, took our curse so that we might be set free and receive grace. Do you see that all of what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden was met in its fullest expression in Jesus Christ he took it all and returns to us grace. Here's a great truth. The Apostle Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Friends, there is no way that sin will ever outdo God's grace. So let me ask you this before we jump right into it. This was all introduction. Your marriage struggling? There is grace available. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. Friends, listen, if you go to Hackman's 
and you pick up the greatest book that you heard about for marriages, you go to that seminar hearing that was a great seminar, if you go to a counselor having heard that he's, he or she's a great counselor, let me tell you, if that person, if that book, if that seminar aren't moving you and directing you to the perfect person of Jesus Christ, then it's not worth the money. Because all that will do is allow you to learn more techniques to change your behavior but leave your heart intact. It's only Christ that can transform our hearts. You know, with all the counseling that I have done, thousands of sessions, I have never, ever, ever changed the heart of anybody. I have no power to do that. But I know the one that does, and I direct people to him. Because it's from the hand of Christ that grace comes. In Genesis chapter 3, 20 through 24, friends, listen, it's meant to bring us to the very gracious feet of Jesus Christ, our King. There's a reason we're entitling this third and final section, the return of the King, because if your marriage is going to get better, then it's going to get better by grace. And we're going to see these glimpses, and first one is Eve. The first glimpse of hope is Eve in the name. Well, how does the name Eve bring us hope? You know, Adam and Eve were in a mess. They had just received their sentences, and Adam reaches out. Now, men, listen. Everybody, every man, look at me. Ladies, you can do whatever you want for a minute. Just don't jab your husbands. Men, listen. I'm going to show you one of the best examples of godly, courageous leadership in marriage, I think, in the, in the Bible. So listen, okay? As I'm trying to listen to and learn how to live this. They just received these sentences, and now Adam, they're not even out of the garden yet. God hadn't even yet evicted them from the garden, and Adam reaches out. Men, listen, he reaches out to his wife, and he gives his wife hope and a future. Look what he says. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. It's the second time Adam has named her. You remember he named her woman? Whenever I call my wife woman, she doesn't think it's very wonderful. But Adam called her woman because it's a beautiful term. It's a term that means opposite of man. It means soft man. Whatever Adam lacked, God created his helper Eve to supplement it, to provide. It's the opposite of Adam. It's a good thing. And now he gives her the name Eve, which means life giver. And Moses, who's writing this, exposits this by saying she's the mother of all living. Now, friends, I want to help you see what an incredible display of faith in Adam's part. Because if you remember chapter 1, verse 28, God had told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to fill the earth with their children generationally. And that from Eve... Part of the sentencing to Satan who possessed the serpent, God said, from this woman will be coming one who will crush your head, Satan. And we know that that's Christ on the cross. But don't you remember when Adam learned from God and was supposed to communicate it to Eve? God never did speak directly to Eve this command with a prohibition to, don't, to, don't, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day you do, you'll die. So when they lined up before God to receive their sentences, friends, listen, wouldn't you be like this? They're waiting to die. 
All of this is going through Adam. And yet he remembered God's command, be fruitful and multiply. He remembered that there will be one from Eve crushing the head of Satan. And he clung to that promise. He clung to that. He had nothing but a promise from God. Yet for Adam, it was enough. Ladies, think about this for a second. How many children did Eve have at that moment? None. She never had a child. And yet Adam could see that she was the life giver. What a display of faith. He trusted God to give what he could not see, which is what we call faith, but what God had promised. All right, men, now listen. This is where we're going to get to it. I love this display of courageous and gracious leadership by Adam. How beautiful that Adam would speak this reassurance to his wife. In other words, here's what Adam said to his wife, Eve, you are not discarded by God. You are important. You are loved by God. He's got a plan for your life. He's going to bless you, Eve, with children. That's what Adam communicated when he renamed her life giver. Men, it's what it looks like to lead our wives spiritually. Adam reminded her of their hope in God, faith, faithful, grace-providing promises. It's when we lead our wives into God's grace, into God's favor, into God's promises to us. Men, do your wives struggle spiritually? How are you leading them? Do they doubt their own beauty and their own worth? How are you communicating that beauty? How are you communicating that worth? It's our job to do that as part of what godly, courageous, bold leadership does. Find ways to convince your wives how precious they are to God. But we see more grace. It's all through this passage. Secondly, we see a glimpse of grace in clothing. What what does that mean? Well, let's read it. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you remember that when Adam and Eve sinned? And by the way, listen, because sin does the same thing in every one of us. When they sinned, a gap appeared. Now hang with me, a gap appeared between what they were and what they knew they ought to be. They ought to have been sinless and perfect and at peace with God and with one another. Now it's fractured, the gap between what is and what ought to be is what we call shame. And the inability to to bridge that gap is to struggle with shame. So they made their own way to try to cover this gap, and they did it through fig leaf loincloths. You see, their eyes were open. Now listen, here's what their eyes were open to. You do know this, right? Their eyes weren't all of a sudden opened to physical imperfections because the only way, really, that we ever feel bad about our bodies is because we've got some subliminal standard that our world gives us. If we don't add up to it, we feel shameful. They didn't feel shameful about their bodies. That's not why they covered up. 
they covered up because their souls were stained. And it was unbearable. So they tried to appear something that they weren't. You know, fig leaves do this. They accentuate the positive, they hide the negatives, black is slimming, avoid stripes. I can imagine Eve picking out the right fig leaf. But stay with me on this for a second. You're going to begin to really see God's grace because fig leaves fail to cover for two reasons. You ready? Here's the first. There's no material on earth. They can hide the blemishes and the shortcomings of our souls. There isn't anything that could do that. Not on earth. Friends, do you know what those loincloths were? And I don't mean just fig leaves. They were what we call self-righteousness. And it's the lethal, deadly power behind legalism. See, fig leaf loincloths can be church attendance. It could be dropping large amounts of money into the offering plate. You know, Jesus was in the courts of the temple. And around the temple courts were 13 baskets. They were inverted trumpet looking metal baskets and their coins weren't round like ours are so these pharisees and these rich people would come up and they would take their coins and they would roll it on the lip of that basket and it would go all the way down like a toilet and the entire time those uneven edged coins would make a racket that would echo through the the courts of the temple and everybody would look and say wow what a large amounts of money that person's giving. And Jesus condemned them because those rich people were wearing fig leaf loincloths trying to cover up for everybody else the gap between what they were and what they knew they ought to be. And here comes some little old lady with two little pennies to her name. And threw them in. And Jesus lifted her up for all of eternity. You see, fig leaves are our efforts to make ourselves look righteous, to fill the gap between what I am and what I ought to be. And what is sad is that fig leaves can work between people. That's why they're so deadly. I can make myself look righteous to you. And all the while, God sees through those fig leaves the stains from my head to my toe to my soul. And all of a sudden, I hide behind trees. But there's a second reason, and it's more important for this morning, why fig leaves can't cover up. It's not just the material of the loincloths. Now, get this, you ready? It was that loincloths can't cover the extent of our stains on our souls. You see, Adam and Eve sewed loincloths together, but God made them garments. Two different words in the Hebrew language. See, loincloths were simply belts around your waist and the leaves hung down to hide your most private of parts. Garments covered your bodies. And so we have from Isaiah the words, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, friends, listen, you've got to get this. Sin hasn't just affected local parts of ourselves. If it could, this is, why, this is why legalists have hope. Because if it's only a couple areas of my life, I can learn to improve them. And if I can prove them, improve them, I can cover this gap, 
between what I am and what I know I ought to be. But fig leaves can't do that because our whole bodies, our whole souls, our whole hearts are polluted. It's what we call total depravity. Can I tell you about a drama that, un, that played out in heaven? Found in Zechariah 3. I'm only going to quickly tell you about it. Go there and study it sometime. You've got Joshua, the high priest of Israel. And Joshua is, there's this vision, and here's Joshua. Look at me, and I'm going to show you how it played out. You've got Jesus, the angel of the Lord, right there. And you've got Joshua standing before Jesus. And guess who's on Joshua's right side, also standing before the Lord? Satan. And here's what Satan's doing in this vision. He's pointing at Joshua while he's speaking to the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, look at this man. He's your top guy. He's your high priest. Look what he did this week. Look at the words that came out of his mouth. Look at the greed that's in his heart. Look at his inability to lead the nation of Israel. And Satan uh, was going on and on to accuse him. And then Jesus says this twice, the equivalent of the Hebrew, shut up, Satan. I've chosen him. And you know what's not said in the text, but really what is true? Is that everything Satan was saying was true. And you know how we know it was true? is because the Bible says Joshua was dressed in filthy robes. And Jesus speaks to those who are around him and, say, and he says to them, take off those filthy garments. It's the same thing he said basically to the friends of Lazarus when Lazarus came out of that grave still wrapped in those dead man's clothes and he told the friends to unwrap them. He says to the friends, take off Joshua's filthy robes and I've got a new robe for him, a new robe called justification, a new robe dipped into the blood of Christ, clean the color of the bride's gown, put it on him, and then take a turban and wrap it around his head. Because if you don't have the renewing of the mind that the word of God brings, then you can be a Christian still living in shame. You know the most famous ink blot in the world, I think? is on a wall of Wartburg Castle in Germany. You know how it happened? It was caused by Martin Luther, who had enough of the devil's constant dredging up of his past failures and sins. He wrote a letter to his best friend, Melanchthon. Here's what he wrote in the letter. I do see myself unsensible and hardened. I am a slave to sloth. My flesh is untamed, and it burns with a devouring flame, Luther wrote. And the story is told that Satan appeared to him one time in a dream, reading a long list of Luther's many sins. And as the list was being read, Luther's terror grew and grew until he finally jumped out of bed and cried out, It is all true, Satan, and many more sins I have committed in my life which are known only to God. But write this on the bottom of that list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all sin. And he took the ink blot that was on the table next to his bed and he threw it at the devil who disappeared and fled immediately and it smashed against the wall. That ink blot is still there today. Friends, if you have come to Christ for forgiveness, you are clean. Your past mistakes, your sins, they're gone. They never, ever will be brought up again by the Creator, ever. 
And we are clothed in white garments, the color of the pure bride of Christ. But fig leaves, friends, you got to get this. Fig leaves cannot cover up because they allow our sins to remain. And you know what I have found in my own marriage and what I have found in marriages throughout this church? Is that husbands and wives, when we're in the midst of conflict, are more willing than ever to pull aside the fig leaves and point out their stains. But the clothing of grace allows us to move forward when God garments us in his love and his grace and removes these sins. How can we bring up the sins of our spouses when God has already taken them? How audacious is that? So that we will keep no records of wrong with each other. You see, God's gift of clothing speaks of his forgiveness, speaks of his justification, speaks of our righteous standing. But it was also a gift for Adam and Eve to be able to view themselves and each other the same way. Friends, listen. If your spouse is in Christ, not only do you have no right to bring up past stains and failures, they're not there anymore. God has taken them and He's wiped them clean and He has put your husband, He's put your wife in a new garment of grace. And that's what He sees. But there's more glimpses. And the third one is a glimpse of grace in the eviction of Adam and Eve. Now how do we see that? Well, look what it says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, don't, don't you know that in books and in movies, immortality is glorified? You see, all these movies where they're trying to find something that will bring them immortality. But listen, if Adam and Eve had somehow found a way to eat from the tree of life, you know what that would have done? It would have allowed them to live forever wicked in an eternally depraved world. You see, friends, listen, it's time to rethink this. It's not a punishment that God barred them from the tree of life. It is grace. I mean, come on, I'm only 43 years old and I'm tired of thistles and thorns in my life. I'm tired of hurting the people that I love. I'm tired of my sinfulness getting in the way of God's will. But can you imagine Adam who lived for 930 years? I mean, come on, he hit early retirement at 900. We got people in our church who are trying to figure out how to do it at 50. 900 years because in an agrarian society, you don't work, you don't eat. Year after year of sweating and battling thorns and obstacles and empty promises called thistles. It's no wonder that God is so gracious, friends, that he lowered the lifespan later after the flood to 120 years. And then even more in the days of Moses, he lowered it to 70. And if you've got a lot of strength, 80. And then the psalmist writes about it. In Psalm 90, it says, their span is but toil and trouble. And they are soon gone and we fly away. Even then, 70 to 80 years, it's toil, it's trouble, it's sorrow, it's hard. It was a gift of mercy when God expelled them from Eden. 
and from the tree of life. But there's more mercy to be found. Look what it says. He drove out the man, the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden. Friends, listen, there is grace in that compass reading of the east. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the east is portrayed all through Scripture as being outside the presence and the favor of the Lord. Let me give you some examples. The temple and the tabernacles. If you wanted to go into the temple, the only way into the temple was through a gateway on the east. It was to come out of the world into the presence of God. In Ezekiel's day, there was evil men, and these evil men stood with their backs to that very entrance on the east of the temple, and they worshipped the sun in the east. Israel entered the promised land across the Jordan from the east, going west. Cain, after murdering his brother Abel, was driven by the Lord into the east, away from the fullness of his presence. It was in the east where wicked Sodom was, where Lot traveled and settled after he and Abraham divided the land. It was east of Jerusalem and, and where Solomon built high places, to worship the God of Moloch. That's the God where you took your babies and your little children and you sacrificed them. That was in the east of Jerusalem. Friend, it's from the east that God has called all of us out of. It's from the world into his presence that we're all called by Christ. You see, the land of the east starves our souls. It's the world. But it helps us to hear God's call. It emaciates our souls so that we will climb back willingly through Christ into his presence. I mean, how many people like John Newton are there who came to the end of his life in the midst of a storm because everything that he had in this world could not bring him satisfaction? But there's even more. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. You know, cherubim are plural for cherub. They're angels of a special order. They're charged with this. They guard the presence of God, and they attend to him. Whenever you see cherubim, you're seeing the throne of God and the presence of God. You see, Eden was the dwelling place of God on earth. Later, it's going to be the tabernacle. Then it's going to be the temple. Now it's going to be the church where two or more are gathered. Christ now lives in the hearts of God's people through the spirit of God. But friends, someday it's going to be when the end of the earth comes and God ushers in his plan. God's going to walk off the throne and live among us and dwell with his people. But cherubim were associated with the mercy of God. Two solid gold cherubims were created and fastened to the very top of the mercy seat. Friends, the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that was placed into the most holy of holies, into which only one time a year and only one person in Israel could go. That was the high priest. And he took the blood and he sprinkled the blood right between the cherubim, right on that seat for the forgiveness of God's people. See, cherubim were associated with mercy. In fact, the curtain that veiled in the temple, the most holy of holies that no one could go beyond, that curtain had cherubim embroidered all through it. There's a connection between cherubim 
and the presence and the mercy, the mercy of God. See, God placed cherubim to, at the entrance, the east entrance to the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. It wasn't just that, though. He placed them there to demonstrate that there was yet mercy available to them, and one day, one was going to come that would allow God the Father to rip that curtain from the top to bottom, and he's going to, through his own body of Jesus Christ, allow us to go into the most holy of holies and worship whenever we want. Friends, it was at the moment of Christ's death on the, on the, on the cross that, that that curtain was ripped. Because the way was now open, the cherubim of mercy, God had found a way through his son Jesus, and now the grace of God is available always. There's even one more, and it's a flaming sword, verse 24, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, there was a sword, and it was a sword of God's white-hot wrath that would allow nobody back into the presence of God. You try to go west, north, south, or under the east, this sword would meet you and destroy you. Because there's no man that can find a way into God's presence through their own effort. God must make a way. And here's what God was saying when he sent Adam and Eve out of that garden. He says, I want you to feel the curse, Adam and Eve. I want you to feel the blast of sin. I want you to know what it's like to live empty and emaciated in the world. I want you to feel it so hard that you begin to have a deep longing for my presence that you will turn to me through my son, Jesus. That's what he was doing. And take heart, Adam and Eve, because I've left these cherubim to guard the way because they are tokens of my mercy. They are emblems of my grace. They stand there not just to guard, but to show you I will open a way back to me. And when he does, that cherubim embroidered curtain will be ripped down. The white hot sword of God's wrath will be sheathed and we will find a way through Jesus back into the presence of God. Friends, listen, do you want a marriage that is supremely satisfying and honoring to God? Honestly, do you really, really want that? God has showed us over and over and over that the very minute he laid out these punishments to the first married couple, he provided grace after grace after grace, and listen, every single one of them point to Jesus. You want a marriage that is beautiful, satisfying, honoring to God, then it must be through Christ. And friends, when we turn to Jesus in utter humility and brokenness, having lived in the west of the, the east of the world, Jesus Christ will pour down grace into our lives. And that's what changes hearts. Can you close your eyes for a moment? I'm not going to do anything weird. And you're not going to have to get out of your pew. But can I ask that you would be, just be utterly honest, please. Because I'm going to ask you two questions. And they may be the very first step for you to find grace in Christ. 
The first question is this, with all the eyes closed, I only make you close your eyes so that you can concentrate with no distractions. Listen, if you have not yet found your way back to God's presence through Christ, if you've not yet given to God your life and asked Jesus Christ and his blood to clean you and to cleanse you and forgive you from your sins, if you've not yet done that, you're living in the land of the East. It's not where God wants you to live. But the only way back to him is Jesus. And that's why he came and he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again to provide an atonement. He sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. And God said, that's what I wanted so that I could forgive and take away fig leaves. Friends, if that's you, if you've not yet turned to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold and be honest? Just put your hand up. Everybody keep your eyes closed. Just put your hand up. Hi, be honest. I see a hand. I see another one. I see another one. Come on, be honest. I don't want you leaving here in the east. Any more people, raise your hands. You can put them down. Let me ask you one more question. Keep your eyes closed, please. Please concentrate. Examine your heart. Is your marriage not what God wants it to be? There's still that gap, even though you're a Christian, that gap between what you are and what you know you ought to be. You're still wearing fig leaves. Would you be honest enough to admit that you have not yet followed Christ and leaned on his grace in your marriage and that there are changes he needs to make and you need to let him. Would you raise your hand and be honest? Keep them up. Hands all over. Any more hands go up? Please be honest. Oh, it's so hard to get that hand up. I know how hard it is. Friends, there is grace available through Christ. Turn to him, confess, and repent. And lean on him and find your way back into God's presence through him. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for my friends. Lord, for those who raised their hands, the first question, Lord, I pray that you would show them the way to Jesus. Lord, give them the road to salvation. Open it up. Let your word shine it so that they can step on it, Lord, and walk back into your presence through Christ. Lord, I think shame is one of the most debilitating conditions that I find Christians struggling with. Lord, this gap between what we are and what we know we ought to be, and we try desperately to bridge it with everything but your grace. Lord, I pray for my friends that they would find their salvation in Jesus. Lord, for those who raise their hands, Lord, admitting in all honesty, thank you for their honesty, that they are falling short of your righteousness in their marriages. It's not a call to perfection. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to loving one another, leading and submitting and bringing you honor and glory. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that today they would make those changes they need to make in the power of Jesus Christ and your grace, that it would flood their hearts, that they don't want to be full of pride. They don't want to blame the other person. They don't want to 
find excuses or shift blame. They want to take responsibility. They want to make these changes. Lord, I pray for them. Uphold them with your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.